the, uh, is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, you remember, negotiated with God. He got it down. They thought, just ten, ten righteous people can be found in that town. It'll be spared. If we know how that ended, only Lot could be found. And yet, because God is so merciful and kind, while he didn't spare the city for the one, he did spare the, the one from the city's destruction. And you may remember the scene. I kind of hope so, because uh, it echoes in our passage this morning. The angels come. They're, they're planning to stay in the city square. Uh, but Lot sees that and goes, that's a bad idea. And so he invites them home. Righteous Lot is hospitable. But the people of Sodom, you may remember, they want to abuse the angels in the most abominable way. Lot offers his daughters up to save them, but to no avail. The angels strike the men with the town with blindness, and, and then Lot flees. Well, now that story, that story finds its first echo in the book of Judges. You know, at the end of the book of Judges, after taking us through that seemingly endless cycle of rebellion and oppression, followed by repentance and deliverance, and then another cycle of rebellion, oppression, and repentance and deliverance, after taking us through that in the book of Judges, the book ends with some really wretched stories to demonstrate the wanton depravity, the cruelty of the people, there being no king in Israel and everyone doing as they saw fit. Now, God is, of course, their king, de jure, that is, by rule. But de facto, as in in practice, they serve their own appetites instead. And in the last of those stories in the book of Judges, we meet a certain Levite. And this Levite took a concubine, and the concubine was unfaithful to him and went back to her father's house, and he was there, she was there for four months. And then he, he went to go get her to speak tenderly to her and, and to draw her back to himself. And, and boy, when her dad sees him, he's excited. Uh, and, and so he gets him to stay there for nearly a week. And, but finally, he's like, no, I've got to go. And, and so he takes his, his, his wife, and he leaves. And, uh, but it's, he left it late in the day, and so he gets... To Jabus. Now, Jabus is going to be Jerusalem, but that's when David, that's after. We're not even there yet in, in 1 Samuel yet, and this is the book of Judges. And so it's a pagan town. And so he, he says, oh, we, we better not stop here. That would not be safe. Let's, let's go to the, uh, a town where the Lord is known. We'll go to Gibeah or Ramah. And so they, go, they end up at Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah, Saul's hometown. It's going to come up again. They end up Gibeah at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And in this first echo of Sodom, Gibeah is like Sodom. The man is, you know, uh, in the square as an outsider. And a righteous outsider sees him and goes, that's not a good idea. Won't you please come home with me? Men of Gibeah surround the place and make the very same demand or threat as Sodom made against Lot. And so the righteous outsider, like Lot, he offers his daughter and the man's concubine to prevent them again, though, to no avail. 
So the Levite thrust his concubine out to them, and they abuse her to death. Now, again, I know it's a wretched story, but listen to what the Levite does, and you'll see that that this story in the book of Judges is mirrored in our passage today in so many of the details. The Levite chops up the dead woman into 12 pieces so that she can send a piece to each tribe, mustering Israel to avenge this great atrocity and purge this evil from Israel. Now, all this happens in Gibeah of Benjamin. So Benjamin isn't thrilled with this idea. They're going to side with their own. And so it, it ends up being 11 tribes against one. And they... They muster together. They All the Israel comes together to, to deal with this Gibeah thing. They come together at Mizpah. Gibeah, Mizpah. All these things are echoing in our passage that we're going to cover in a minute. I'm just bringing you some background. So when they gather together at Mizpah, all these 11 tribes who are angry at what's happened in Gibeah, and they're, they're going to go fight Benjamin, uh, they swear... Before the Lord, we will not give our daughters in marriage to a Benjamite. Nor will we take a Benjamite daughter for our son. They asked the Lord what to do. So they're doing everything right. They want to purge you know, the evil from Israel. And, and they're not just going in guns a blazing. They go to the Lord. They ask, should we go? Who should go first? Judah should go first. And God lets them get beat twice. Think about that. Why? Finally, he lets them win. And the victory was so decisive that the entire tribe of Benjamin was reduced to 600 men, 600 fugitives who'd fled the battle and hid at the rock of Ramon. And so there's great lamentation. What are we going to do, Lord? There's a light snuffed out of Israel, a whole tribe. What are we going to do? 600 men, no prospective wives, Benjamin is coming to an end. Well, there was no, one town that didn't come, that didn't respond to the call of the cut-up woman. Jabesh Gilead, again, the third place that is going to appear in our passage again this morning. So Jabesh Gilead didn't do anything, and so the Israelites who mustered slaughtered the whole town men, women, and children, but they did find 400 virgins that they could marry off to the 600 men, so that leaves 200 left. I'll leave you to, find, to, to read how they solved that. It's in the book of Judges. It's kind of interesting, but they, uh, with that background, let's dive into the second reverberation of Sodom. So Sodom and Gomorrah were an earthquake, and we've got We've got those aftershocks, right? First aftershock we saw at the end of Judges. Now let's open our text. We're in 1 Samuel. Um, 
If you have a copy of God's Word with you, you might want to make your way over to 1 Samuel and turn to chapter 10. 1 Samuel 10, we're picking up in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms who they were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So the the people have demanded a king. Samuel, if you remember, sternly warned them, this is not going to be roses and unicorns here. This is going to go bad. You're going to regret this decision. But they're like, no, give us a king like the nations around us. So at God's direction, Samuel said, fine, everyone go home. And, and, And then you remember... We met Saul. He lost his donkeys and, and, and all that. And God sovereignly brought Saul to Samuel and had Samuel privately anoint Saul to be king of Israel before he was publicly selected and publicly crowned. You had the private event. Now, we're going to see that same pattern with David when we get to him. Now, it's time to publicly uh, select and install him as king. So Samuel calls all the people together at Mizpah. just where they had mustered against Benjamin years before. Now, this is on that three-city route that that, uh, Samuel ministered on a circuit, Um, uh, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and then he lived at Ramah. Um, What was God's message when they gathered? He says, I'm the one who delivered you. Originally from Egypt and, and ever since. But you want someone else, which means you don't want me. Verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So God sovereignly picks Saul from all the tribes and all the peoples of Israel, picks him by name, but he's not there. Now, we're going to see something like that with David, too. Um, You know, he's not there when his brothers are paraded before Samuel. Uh, But how are we to understand Saul's actions here in, in hiding among the baggage? Scholars are divided on this. It could be a a sign of humility that he doesn't feel adequate to this task to which he's called. Um, And those scholars may be right. I mean, we are told that Saul was 
turned into a new man. And as we finish our story this morning, you'll see that Saul's first acts were, were powerful and good. That's coming up, though. For now, they find him in the baggage and because you know, God tells them where to look. And, and that's why I don't really think this is a good look for him. Um, we know that the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So there's a, you know, I, I mentioned this last time, there's a possible hint at failure since when the Spirit came upon him, he doesn't seem to have done anything about that Philistine garrison in his backyard. Instead, he just goes home. And here he is hiding among the baggage, and the people don't pause to think, hey, is a scaredy cat a good choice for our king? Instead, they just they don't look at the character of the man at all, really. They just look at his physical stature. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Long live the king. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home, and Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went some men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought no present. But he held his peace. Now, rights and duties, the rights and duties of the kingship, that, that's really rights and duties is one word in Hebrew. I, I suppose the translators are trying to show you how broad a range this, the semantic range this word has or something, but... The word's basically judgment, and judgment also has a wide semantic range in English and works just fine. So I, I wish they'd have done that. But he, he, he explained to them, he laid down the judgment of the kingdom, which really means it's the rule of the kingdom. There is something above the king, and it's the rule. Presumably, it's something like what we read in, in Deuteronomy 17. You know, um, he, he shouldn't acquire many horses. Uh, He's not to go to Egypt to get those horses because you're not supposed to go back to Egypt again. He's not to accumulate a bunch of wives because uh, they'll lead his heart astray. And he's not supposed to just amass a fortune because that'll also lead your heart astray. He's supposed to write a copy of the law, make sure that it's approved by the Levites, and keep that with him and read it all the time. So Samuel sent everyone home. Saul, Saul went home too with a, a little troop of devotees. But of course, there's uh, you always have some who just won't get on board. Uh, they refuse to support him. But notice that he, he doesn't do anything about it. He overlooks that offense. So, so far, Saul's behaving really well in some ways and, and questionably in others. Um, chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Remember Jabesh-Gilead? Didn't muster, and they were destroyed, and the 400 virgins came from there. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. 
The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel, and if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now again, notice that town, Jabesh Gilead. When when Saul does what, what he does in response to this, He's going to win a great victory. He's going to deliver Jabesh Gilead, and they never forget it. They're going to come up again in our story. Uh, They are big fans of Saul. So Nahash is picking a fight. He's deliberately trying to humiliate Israel. And notice what Saul does that he reflects the very same righteous indignation that that, that certain Levite had, or the, the righteous indignation that God had as he destroyed Sodom. It is outrageous what Nahash is demanding in the same vein of outrageosity. Is that a word? What is the word for that? It's the same. It's just as outrageous as what we've seen in Sodom and Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. <coughs> so once again, Saul, Saul's an enigma. He's the king of Israel and he's har- farming behind oxen. Now... Um, Don't get me wrong, that indicates some wealth, but we already knew the son of Kish came from wealth. It's it's intriguing to me that the king is acting much like the judges that he was put in place to replace. Now, is that humility? Or so is, is, is Saul humble or is Saul a scaredy cat? I just don't know. Um, Maybe it's a little bit of both. We'll come back to consider this as we think about what we take away from this passage. But notice verse 7. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Unity of vision is the point. 
Just as all Israel gathered to purge evil from her midst in the time of the judges, so Israel gathers to guard and protect her own. Even though this town was once subject to a purge by Israel, having been purged, this town is part of the body. It's accepted and it's protected. Also note that Saul issues the threat, but God's the one who makes the threat effective. Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the Spirit rushed upon Saul. He delivered Jabesh, and he shows grace to those who had acted like his enemies. He doesn't treat them as enemies precisely because he recognizes that God has acted graciously toward the people, so the people must act graciously toward one another. And with these great acts of valor and character behind him, Samuel sees that the people are ready for a new coronation, a real coronation, a renewal of the kingship. This is the pinnacle for Saul. It's all downhill from here. And that brings us to consider, what do, we, what do we take away from this passage? You know, I think we ought to note the connection between those three stories, Sodom and Gibeah and Nahash, especially the last two. God demands two things. Holiness and chesed. We've talked about chesed before. It's often translated as loving kindness or something like that. But it's, it's the bond that naturally exists between a mother and her child or a child and his mother or vice versa. You know, it's it's that, that, that innate love and commitment. We know what it is. Jabesh belongs to Israel. And so the eye doesn't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet. We're a people that is called to holiness, and and we know that the holiness is only found in the finished work of Jesus. He's the one who cleanses us. and, And we don't get clean by stopping sinning. We stop sinning because he cleans us. He declares us holy. If only we will rest in his forgiveness that he won for us with his own blood. And because all of us come the same way, because we all come with the same death to self, we all come confessing our utter unworthiness, and yet acknowledging that the Lord loved us anyway and gave himself up for us. You know, each of us is only in Christ because he opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, called us out of the darkness. And so we are, no matter where we've been or what we've done, 
If we come in repentance and faith, we belong. The unity of the people in our passage, standing as one man, that's a sign of strength for Israel. The world will know that we belong to Jesus by the love that we have for one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So it was right and good for Saul to muster Israel and deliver Jabesh. Saul has begun well. So what do we do with Saul? He's been changed into a man, new man, and here he, he acts like it. With maybe a few hints at trouble ahead. There, there, are, there are no more than hints, though. For the most part, Saul comes out aces here. So how are we to deal with Saul? Is, is he one of us or not? There's no doubt that the Spirit of God was active in Saul's life. And yet, Saul does not persevere in the faith. You know, I have a very reformed perspective on the Scriptures. I, I think the Bible presents God clearly as determining everything, absolutely everything that comes to pass, including me, giving me eyes to see, a new heart that could believe the gospel. Nevertheless, while we're told that divine perspective, our experience is the human perspective. We can't crawl up over God's shoulder to see our name written in the Lamb's book of life, can we? We live our lives repenting and believing. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Living a life of repentance, you're never done, this side of glory... Walking in faith, he's your righteousness, he's your deliverer, he is your Lord. Well, we're called to persevere in that. Think of the Jesus, the soil that Jesus preached about. Sure, there were some, some seed that never got into the ground at all. The birds took that from the path, right? But there were, there were other soils that, that the plant did spring up just didn't last because the cares of this world or persecution wiped them out. So some people respond to the gospel, but they don't stick it out. And it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I think Saul is something like that. And that's why I call him a tragic figure. Applying 2 Peter 2.21 to Saul particularly, we, we would say, for it would have been better for Saul never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to him. So the takeaway is this. You, brothers and sisters, you, you've made a good start. 
Not that you've been particularly righteous in thought, word, and deed, but to the contrary, you've, you've confessed your bankruptcy, your spiritual bankruptcy. You see that the... You see the blackness that, that remains on your heart even now, and you hate it. But you've embraced the gospel, and so while you lament what, what remains of the old man in you, and you want him to die, you rejoice in the grace that's promised to you. Keep that sense of what you have been forgiven. Keep that sense of your neediness before the Lord. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be tender toward one another, restoring one another gently. You, you, you know, you cannot restore a brother without confrontation, can you? But the point of the confrontation is never to divide, but to unite together in a common purpose, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. We do that by living according to the better way that he has shown us. We do that by being gracious to one another when we slip, because none of us consistently walks according to the way that he's taught us, have, do we? And so we're gracious toward one another. And we do that by sharing this offer of grace with any and all who will hear of the glorious goodness, the profligate grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would that you would instill in our hearts the, the humility that we once knew when we first came to you, that we would see the, the wonder of your forgiveness in the face of our sins and marvel, that we would over, overflow in love for our Redeemer in such a way that that love flows to one another. Father, we ask that you would complete the work you've begun in us. Let us be a beacon of hope in the area and let the love that we have for one another show forth plainly and truly and clearly. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, he also...